Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. We're going to be talking today about some of the recent political events that what the broader implications are, what that means, and what's likely to happen. So here to talk with us about that, uh, we have Richard uh, Hanania, who is, uh, we, he wears several hats. Uh, he's an analyst with the Defense Priorities, he works a lot on foreign policy issues, but he's also uh, recently started a, his uh, new think tank called the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, uh, which deals more with uh, data-driven political analysis, uh, critiques of social science, and other things like that. So, Richard, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Josiah. I want to talk a, a little bit later on about uh, a num- you know some of the things for the, the new think tank and what you're doing. Uh, but the main reason I wanted to have you come on uh, is that given the events at the Capitol and uh, other you know, recent events, there's been a lot of concern about the possibility of political unrest in the United States. And I know that you, you have kind of almost become the go-to guy for saying, no, actually, uh, uh, we don't have to worry about the prospect of civil war in the United States. It's not a realistic concern. So, uh, you know, it's, a, uh, it's, it's good to have a niche. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, why don't you just, you know, m- maybe lay out why it is that you think uh, some of the talk about worries about civil war, widespread political violence is uh, not, it's not something that we need to be overly concerned about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a strange, uh, it's a strange niche to have, uh, to be the contrary and to say that the United States is likely not to have a civil war. And it's funny because I'm, I'm not the most optimistic person in the world about American institutions and sort of, uh, where our political culture is going. So I, I think I'm more on the pessimistic end of the spectrum, but maybe not given, given how much, uh, you know, given what other people think is likely to happen. Uh, so I, I came at this, um, through the empirical, uh, study of, uh, civil war. So, uh, analysts who have looked at this basically have looked at civil wars for the last, uh, since we had the era of where we collected statistics on different countries. Um, and we looked at things like their GDP and, you know, other, other measures, topography and whatever. And over the last several decades, basically, uh, the story that it tells is there's, there's two models you can potentially imagine. There's a grievance-based model of civil war, where if uh, people hate each other enough, eventually they start killing each other. So if you think about how people talk about the Balkans wars, it's sometimes along the lines of, well, these uh, these people always had these tensions. They were bottled up by the by the existence of communism in Yugoslavia. And when that collapsed, these people started killing each other. People talk about the uh, uh, Sunnis and Shia killing each other in Iraq in a lot of the same ways. That basically there's these grievances. And uh, once the dictator was removed, they, they started fighting. So there's this, there's this grievance model. And sometimes it's based on just having uh, ethnic, normal ethnic culture, religious tensions, and sometimes it's uh, something else like one group is being discriminated against <clears throat> or whatever. Um, and then there's the opportunity model, which says, look, grievance is ubiquitous. Some percentage of the population is if, hates other people um, everywhere you go. And what separates the places that fought, that find themselves 
uh, facing large scale, um, large scale death and destruction, people killing each other in large numbers. They usually tend to be the uh, states with uh, places where lo- with low state capacities. This is the opportunity model. Violence breaks out when there's an opportunity for it, when the state is weak forever, for whatever reason. Uh, it could be a regime change war where the U.S. removed the government. It could be just a lot of the most common reason is countries are just poor and they don't have a lot of access to some of their uh, rural and more difficult to reach areas. That's uh, that's a problem in the developing world. And the um, the the uh, norm in civil wars is usually for the state to control the cities and then the rebels to have uh, a base in either the countryside or some other inex- inaccessible region like mountain mountain ranges or um, or you know s- swamps forests something like that uh, and so basically the data indicates that the opportunity based model is correct wealthy countries do not do not face civil wars because because basically they have the resources to take care with any threats to their power. Now you apply that to the United States today. I think there's, um, you know, few, uh, countries in world history that have had as much, uh, surveillance and force capacity to neutralize potential threats to itself. So the United States might have many problems. I don't see uh, civil war as potentially one of them. You would, I think you do note in, you know, you, I think you kicked this off with an op-ed in the Washington post a couple months ago. Uh, and that you did note there that Americans do seem to hate each other a lot more uh, than at least in the recent past, right? Sure. So yeah. The grievances have been uh, built up. And I wonder, you kind of alluded to this, but I wonder, uh, would you say that, you know, grievance is, and having people hate each other, is that a, a necessary but not sufficient condition for civil war in that, you know, uh, for to have a civil war, people need to hate each other. But as long as there's a strong state that can keep them from killing each other, it won't happen. But if that were to break down, then it would. Or would you say, uh, you know, people could always find a reason to hate each other. And if there's a state breakdown, uh, then those things will kind of bubble up and, and you know, the, the breakdown will cause uh, the necessary level of, of grievance. Uh, do you kind of understand what, the distinction I'm making there? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I think it's more along the lines of the grievances. Grievance is always there. When you look at uh, most civil wars or most large-scale political violence, it's not as if uh, the vast majority of the population is involved. It can be a few hundred or a few thousand fighters, um, and they can they can potentially challenge a government or they can potentially kill other people. So we're a country of three hundred thirty million, three hundred forty million, something something like that. There's always going to be plenty of hate there. Um, and you know, it probably doesn't help if the hate gets turned up a bit, but it's always, no matter what, it's always going to be a minority that's going to participate in any kind of insurrection, uh, or a rebellion. And so, so yeah, the, the, the question is what separates the countries from that face this when you keep in mind that you only need, you know, a few thousand people at, at most to have a you know the the floor for where you'd have a civil war um, and then there's these nations with tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people what separates the ones that actually they start killing each other from ones that don't I, I I think that understanding it as some places have less societal tensions than others it, you know it could be a small factor I don't think that's the correct way to understand it I think the correct way to understand it is state capacity is really important and the places who the places that are lacking it have a lot of problems. All right. Well, I guess with that in mind, do you think that we're, uh, if we're not sort of on the brink of a civil war per se, do you think that 
the you know what what are the prospects for months or longer of I guess what you might say low grade um, political violence, whether that's uh, looks like uh, the Timothy McVeigh bombing in Oklahoma City, or um, you know I don't know if you want to call this political violence, but like what we saw on Christmas Day uh, in Nashville, do you think that the the prospects for that? Um, are heightened based on the current, you know, what we saw last week and what we've seen sort of leading up to, you know, the events of last week. Yeah. So, I mean, a civil war, I mean, is, it's, it's, so it's, when you, okay, you look at civil war and then you look at sort of these one-off events, terrorist attacks or uh, occasional, um, you know, uh, just uh, these sort of stochastic, uh, stochastic events like, like mass shootings. Um, those are just very difficult pr- to predict, right? So you might have the my average year of American, in the average year you might see uh, 0.4 terrorist attacks or something, right? So like 10 people uh, could get together and do something and you could have a, you could have an outlier. Uh, so this stuff is just very hard to predict. Um, the thing about political violence and the, the kind that can turn into civil war is that it usually involves political actors with goals. So I think to have the long kind of sustained violence where people are killing each other in large numbers, you need to have some kind of uh, realistic path to a political outcome that people that people see in the future, right? And the fact that we have strong state capacity stops that. Now, can that answer for every single individual or every uh, crazy, you know, crazy small group of individuals that might go out and do something hopeless, even though it has no uh, prospect of actually achieving their political goals, it'll probably backfire. Like, like D- Dylan Roof, for example, when he goes and uh, when he goes uh, and kills innocent people at a black church, he's a neo-Confederate. It ends up the Confederacy gets canceled, and you know, all, all its symbolism. You know, people, people do that. Those people tend to be, uh, you know, in addition to morally, uh, morally terrible people, they tend to be not very smart actors because it usually tends to backfire. Uh, so you, you know, there's always going to be people who aren't very who aren't very smart who are going to make decisions like that. Uh, for most people, most of the time, though, they kind of believe to. Uh, to uh, sustain the violence over a long period of time. There has to be the prospect of su- of uh, political success, and usually it's not there. Well, what about what about this? What about uh, you know, uh, sort of a I hate to to use this analogy, but sort of a Sinn Fein IRA type of approach. I mean, and the reason I bring that up is because so many of uh, Republican elected officials right now that are opposing um, impeachment and removal are. Uh, you know, their, their response is we can't do this in the name of unity, because if we do, we're going to have not just more division, but political unrest and violence. And so there's there's there is a warning of of political violence by their own supporters. I mean, it's sort of almost almost I don't know if this is happening inadvertently, but it almost feels like sort of the Sinn Féin approach of you, you really need to. Uh, uh, adhere to our positions. Otherwise, there's going to be political violence from people that might possibly be our supporters. I mean, is there is there risk of using that type of even what you might say sporadic political violence as a way just to intimidate um, of officials and the public? Yeah, I mean, the yeah, the Republican Party, I mean, I, 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 I like, I mean, we have to say that these reports of that they're afraid of their um, constituents, they seem sort of self-serving. They're not saying this openly. They're saying this sort of on background to CNN reporters and to Democratic uh, Congress people. And it seems like this might be uh, this might be a sort of a, a cop out that uh, sort of uh, apologizing for their sort of uh, try to trying to justify their own behavior. You know, we don't see people saying this um Publicly, but yeah, I, I think it's I think it's true that there are a lot of people 
riled up now. Uh, the question is, can it be channeled? So can this sort of uh, anger, if it's in combination with elected officials, people within the state itself, um, can it be channeled towards accomplishing political goals? In theory, yeah, I, th- I think that that's, that's something that could happen. And in the United States, it seems to be um, it seems to be more reactive. I mean, they, they are, I think, afraid of their support. I don't know if they're really a, a realistically afraid of being killed by their supporters, but they're at least afraid of primaries. Um, they're afraid <laughs> of losing. Maybe they, maybe in their mind, it's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, they, they, their fears are not completely groundless. They have something to fear. Um, but, but I mean, there's there's at least what there seems to be this underlying message. Well, I don't know. It's an underlying message. It seems pretty pretty blatant to me. Of you can't do this because our 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 our, our our constituents are really mad. Um, and so yeah, I, I see you know, that, I mean, that's what I'm concerned about is, you know, it's one thing. In, I mean, it's bad enough in the case of resisting um, uh, conviction over the events that have happened. But <laughs> the prospect that this becomes a norm that we're going to use political violence, you know, violence as intimidation is a pretty scary prospect short of short of civil war. I agree that it's it's potentially. I mean, it's it is potentially concerning. Uh, you know, the the question is when Republicans say these things that we need unity. Uh, in this point, you know, it's a pretty strange time to to you know to bring to bring that and sort of into consideration. The way I mean, the way I see Republican politicians, it's sort of much more pedestrian than that. I think they they don't want to defend Trump's actions. But they don't also don't want to vote for impeachment, and they don't want to vote for convict. And so, what do they say? They go and they say, "Oh, it's too too divisive." I don't I don't see it as a threat. I see it as them just making a really bad argument because they're stuck in a different place, and that's the only thing they can say. They can say it's divisive, and that, that way, they, you know, they have an excuse not to vote for it, even though it makes no sense, right? But you know, the, they're in a, they're in a tough position, and they're they're self interested politicians. Yeah, and I I will also say that uh, you know the general argument that. Uh, you know, we need to pass uh, or we need to the government needs to do or not do X, Y and Z, because otherwise, you know, uh, people who are on vaguely on the same side with me, although with some distance, right, you know, may react violently if we don't do that. Like that has a long uh, history, you know, in American politics on all sorts of sides of issues. I mean, that was a big issue. There was a, a big argument during the civil rights era is that like, you know, look, if you deny people their their civil rights, then there will be, you know, unrest and, and rioting and that, that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, there's always, there's always been uh, sort of on the left, a little bit of a, I don't want to see a p- apology for, for riots and urban unrest, but at least a framing of it where it's understandable and they're suggesting sort of policy cons- uh, policy consequences to stop it from happening. I mean, that's, I mean, that's a good, that's a good point because there is sort of symmetry, uh, symmetry there. I mean, I, 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 a scary thing would be a movement that had some kind of coordination with violent groups, but also had political goals. I, I don't know what the storm, the Capitol people's political goal is aside from, from Trump. <laughs> Right. Aside from giving putting Trump back in office. And once that's not a real possibility, I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly what they'd want or what the Republicans would be would be pushing for. But, yeah, that, that's a good point. Right. They're very strong against pedophilia. I, I <laughs> yeah. Brave. Yeah. Uh, but we need to they, they want us to ban pedophilia. Uh, one question that I have is, you know, if if state capacity and the uh, ability of the state to suppress, you know, vi- political violence or uh, is er, and violence in general is really important 
then you know how how does that reflect on say recent movements uh, to defund the police or you have situations uh, like in Los Angeles or some other counties where they say well uh, the the district attorney says well we're just not going to prosecute a whole bunch of offenses now does that increase the risk that you know we might lose the state capacity or just choose not to exercise the state capacity necessary to prevent uh, some sort of spiraling political violence or is it just that's just not on the on the level that it would be needed uh, in order to have something like that yeah so there's this analogous debate i've talked about the civil war literature there's this, always been this anal- analogous debate within um criminology are people do people commit crimes because they have grievances they're suffering from racism discrimination poverty whatever or do they just commit crimes because you know some people are young and stupid and and that's what they do and if the police are not going to clamp down on it you're going to get violence and you're going to get people robbing each other and so forth um and i think that a lot of i mean a lot of i think that there's um you know, there, there's, uh, there's a. This is fundamental to I think conservative liberal differences in the philosophy of what what causes crime. Um, I think that most people who look at the data, uh, even left wing people who write for for Vox and other publications, they say that defunding the police is a really bad idea. We have some, we have great data on that over the years. Much, you know, even cutting back funding, cutting back uh, police patrols, you know, much less defunding. So that seems to be a seems to be a plus for the opportunity model of uh, of understanding crime. Time, just like the opportunity model of civil war uh, tends to beat out the grievance model in these uh, in these regressions. Um, the, so yeah, I, I think that there. I mean, there was obvious there was obviously a, a huge uptick in murders in 2020, and that that was without most places defunding the police. It was just about the police becoming less proactive, and when the police became less pro- proactive, crime in these inner city neighborhoods uh, went up. Um, now the question about uh, does that tell us something about uh, the likelihood of civil war? I don't think so. I think the state um, is much more responsive to threats to itself than it is to res- uh, to threats that are just an increase in crime that disproportionately uh, f- uh, fall on uh, poor people, less powerful people, and are widely distributed. Um, so, yeah, the, the local police aren't aren't watching. So the, you know, you have the proud boys or you have, uh, these left-wing, um, extremist organizations. It's not the local police mostly that are, that are watching them, that are doing, that are bringing their surveillance capacity and their law enforcement capacity onto them. It's the, you know, group, uh, or it's the FBI, uh, the, the surveillance is going through the NSA. Um, so, uh, this is, um, yeah. So, so the state tends to be, you know, the state could theoretically, um, the state could theoretically uh, uh, get renounce its power. It could th- uh, theoretically um, defund itself or just just stop uh, stop prosecuting uh, threats to itself. Uh, the states just tend not to do that for for obvious reasons. I, I want to go back to something that you said a minute ago that I thought was interesting. And you know, you you said that like the people who stormed the Capitol, they didn't they didn't really have broader political goals or, you know, they're not part of like a broader political movement. I, I forget your exact words beyond just like reelecting Trump. Right. And so, you know, I, I wanted to ask about that because I think people have different theories about the Trump phenomenon. And I know this is something that your uh, think tank that you've released work that kind of bears on this. And I guess there's, you know, there's, there's two or three ways to, to look at it. So, uh, some People, uh, I guess, uh, think that you know Trump phenomenon is part of like broader 
it's, it's like economically motivated. There's issues of populism or whatnot. And then uh, alter, al- alternate to that, uh, there is, uh, a, I guess, a more culturally based model that people are more concerned about you know, uh, cultural issues, be it immigration or uh, other stuff like that. And I guess, I, I don't know if this would fit into a third model or maybe it's part of the cultural thing, but some of it is just like, you know, it's just purely personality based, right? So even even the stuff like immigration uh, or, you know, flag burning or whatever, uh, that's not even the root of it. People just really like Trump. And so they, therefore you couldn't, you know, if you just get rid of Trump, if Trump's out of the picture, then it just goes away, right? So, is that uh, where do you, where would you place yourself as far as you know those those sorts of theories or explanations? So, I think uh, we have to sort of break down the question into different parts. There's the phenomenon of the Trump voter and people who supported Trump in the election, and then you have the phenomenon of the diehards, the people who go to rallies and the people who go to uh, who go try to storm Capitol Hill, um, and I think so. I mean, starting with the starting with the voter, yes. Uh, George Howley and I released a report at cspicenter.org where we talk about basically it's it's not economically motivated. Um, it's, it's and this is not specific to specific to Trump. Going back decades in political science, if you know someone's uh, wallet, if you know someone's bank account, and you know how uh, how they're doing economically, it's always just been a very very poor predictor of, of voting. Uh, so Trump supporters uh, aren't particularly poor. Um, they're actually uh, on average wealthier. Now, there's some uh, there's some racial correlates there and that uh, whites tend to be uh, richer than blacks and Hispanics. But even when you take that into account, it's a very there's a very small difference in um, even among whites uh, based on economic uh, situation. Um, so from economic situation, you have a very, very difficult time predicting how people voted. Uh, you know, even... Um, even at the industry level, if you just ask people about their attitudes towards free trade, um, and you look at industries that have been suffered from uh, globalization and people who work in industries that haven't, uh, still, uh, uh, economic self-interest tend to be tends to be a weak predictor. People's attitudes towards foreign culture predicts their attitudes towards trade. It's it's not a it's not anyway a rational um, calculation. It's not like we're losing thanks to Chinese or we're selling to the Chinese. It's more like do I like Chinese people or not? <laughs> and basically, people's uh, people's uh, how they interpret economic uh, realities is basically shaped by that. So that that's the Trump voter. This is this is the American voter. I think this is a voter probably in most in most democracies. Uh, um, it's it's more it's more uh, culture more culture tri- culture tribalism um, ish- issues to a lesser extent than you know economic interest at the at the very bottom uh, barely there now the people who stormed the the capital that's a very um, that's a very specific subset of Trump supporters and I don't I haven't seen um, I don't know if there's a lot of data on this it's easy to study Trump supporters and just pull the population and they're a large part of the population and you could look at how people voting those people who got in, got into buses and got into cars and went to DC and thought they were going to arrest Nancy Pelosi yeah we, we really we really don't know as much I mean all I can all I can say is ideologically you know to to have sort of an ideological component to this whether culture, economics, or whatever, there has to be some kind of internal consistency. And so there was everything there from Nazis to Orthodox Jews. Um, you know, there was, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Christian, you know, Christian conservatives. It's just, and people who just, you know, 
think pedophilia is bad and have become sort of obsessed with this issue. Um, so what's motivating? I think if I had to guess, like without data and just sort of observing what's going on, I think it's I think it's sort of personality based combined with um Combined with sort of uh, religious uh, religious inclination, or I shouldn't say religious inclination, maybe part of being part of one religious subculture, um, and being maybe conspiracy minded. I think conspiracy conspiracy theorists have always been underrepresented in national politics. Conspiracy theories have wide scale popular support, but they tend not to get a lot of a uh, um, they tend not not to get a lot of backing in you know the halls of Congress or other um, other places of power. So if I was gonna if I was gonna understand the Trump phenomenon, I think I would I would look at sort of personality uh, to understand the most diehard supporters. Yes, well, uh, yeah, com- conspiracy theories have always been uh, a big part of American politics. Uh, in fact, I, I would say that uh, the revolution happened because of a conspiracy theory <laughs> or, or a series of them uh, anyway. Um, the, I guess, you know, w- one interesting thing is uh, the extent to which a lot of, you know, it's definitely not all. So I, I know, I know a couple people who were, were at the rally on the 6th. Uh, they did not go inside the Capitol, uh, but they were there uh, and, you know, are really into it. And uh, uh, these people that I that I know, uh, you know, they're not QAnon people, uh, but apparently there was a fairly large, you know, QAnon contingent uh, there. And Q is a kind of very strange conspiracy theory that I guess started three or four years ago about some, basically the uh, United States government and our elite are run by like a conspiracy of Satanist pedophiles and Trump and a few other people are like engaged in this battle against them you know it's a rotating quest around trump people fall in their good graces and they fall out of their good graces just depending on how trump feels about a person in a particular moment right yeah and i haven't i haven't done a deep dive into q uh although i do know one person who is really into it who has sent me some stuff um and you know uh apparently like Tom Hanks, I don't know if you know that Tom Hanks was arrested back in March. And then <laughs> if you see him like on the TV, that's a deep fake, right? It's yeah, a yeah. image. So, yeah. you know, like there's a lot of it that's like pretty out there. I, I don't, you know, I don't want to say yeah, like. You didn't, touch on that. you didn't touch on the craziest stuff. I mean, the craziest stuff. I don't know how much you know the craziest stuff. But uh, at one point, the belief was that uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. has been hiding all these years. And. Right. Um, and he was going to be Trump's vice president. Trump was going to take Pence off the ticket and put JFK Jr. on it, and they were going to they were going to go get, kill all the pedophiles. I mean, it's <laughs> this, this is a real thing. I mean, this it's yeah. Just to say they're pedophiles around the world that doesn't even do it justice. I mean, it's much crazier than that. Yes, right. Yeah. So I guess the question is, you know, what sort of staying power does that have? You would think that with Trump no longer in uh, the White House. Uh, that there's kind of like a an end date, you know. It's kind of like in the 19th century, there was uh, this sect of people that was predicting the end of the world on a specific date, uh, the Millerites, and uh, the date came and went, it's called the Great Disappointment. Uh, and of course, a lot of people after that kind of gave up on it, but uh, a core of people actually just kind of reinterpreted it is being like, no, you know, the end of the world happens in some broader spiritual sense. 
Um, and they continue on to today, actually, um, uh, as a religious group you may have heard of. But um, is there is there like a you know a similar prospect for Q? Could we see like Q candidates and the Q party and like you know uh, something like that? Or do you think it's just like it's kind of like the flavor? It's been the flavor of the moment, and it's it was already kind of getting stale, and people will move on, move on to something else. Well, I mean, the Q candidates. I mean, I don't know how much this is exaggerated by the media, but there are they they do say there are Q and on Congresswomen, and they point to Marjorie uh, Taylor Greene and uh, Lauren uh, Bobbert. Is that how you say Bobbert or something like that? The the, the new lady from Colorado. Um, and I don't. I think these they've distanced themselves from Q um, recently, but I think you know at some point in social media they somehow endorsed it. Um, so it, it's it's almost it's it's almost here. Um, and you know where does the, where does this thing go? I mean, the origins are interesting. I mean, there's a there. I think there. Were, I think uh, some reporting has been done to uh, indicate that it's it was basically who was running the four chan or eight chan. It was it was just sort of a way to uh, to bring traffic. Um, I've heard some theories that it's um, that it's uh, people close to Trump because I mean it makes sense that if you think what 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 would be the perfect like if you were if you were in Trump's position or around Trump. Like, what would be the ideal thing for people to believe that no matter what happens, you have it under control and you're running everything and it's, you know, it's almost unfalsifiable. It's almost perfectly suited to sort of uh, give him a, a, a rabid uh, following um, that will that will go, go with him uh, through thick and thin. And maybe that happens on accident just because people are drawn to this cult of personality and the fact that he happens to be president. Um, and so maybe it doesn't need direction at the top, but I don't think it's probably Trump, you know, maybe somebody like Michael Flynn or something. I mean, Michael Flynn has uh, tweeted out specifically QAnon stuff. So you can imagine somebody close to Trump saying that, you know, this is, this is a, a good strategy for us. Um, where does it go? Yeah, I don't know. I think, well, I mean, I, I think I, I, I do sort of have an idea organically. It could have, it could have kept growing. Um, I think that after, uh, uh the, uh, storming of the Capitol, I think it's going to be very, very hard. Um, I think they're going to be deplatformed just about everywhere they go. Um, I think that it's going to be, you know, um, just you'll be subject to all kinds of cancellation if you flirt with this stuff at all. Uh, so it's 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 hard in the internet era to really um, to really grow without access to the technology you know through which most ideas spread. So if I was going to take a guess, I think it's probably um, you know if it was organically, I think it'd be hard to predict. The fact that uh, big tech is coming down on it um, makes me think that you know I think I would be pretty confident that it's probably not going to have much of an influence in the future. But do you think that that just the you know, the images, the stories that are coming out at the Capitol. And then, you know, you can imagine the same type of thing happening if there's future violence. Don't you think that or do you think that that really might drive a wage between the people that really are engaged in this, believed in all these wacky different things versus sort of the run of the mill, if you want to call them conservative that, you know, like, ah, well, you know, there's fraud. They, you know, they, they want to, they, they will say that they'll mouth that whether they have a deep conviction about that or not. Do you think that this is that seeing images of violence and seeing images of the Capitol stormed, that this will have any type of, you know, wake up call, moral clarification for anybody, or is it just, we're just too far down that road? No, no, we're too far. I mean, look at the look at the vote on impeachment. I, you know, I tweeted the other day, uh, how strong is partisanship in the U.S.? Well, I mean, congressmen were just fearing for their lives last week. 
and ten Republicans out of out of you know two what is it two two ten two eleven uh, voted voted to convict him. Um, I can't imagine a more extreme scenario. If you want people to wake up. And, you know, this is the if they were going to do it, if they were going to turn on Trump, the fact that he is deplatformed, the fact that he's leaving office anyway, um, this would be the this would be like this is the ideal moment to show a little bit of a spine and to turn against him. And they're still not doing it. And so my view is, yeah, we're 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 too far gone in morality. You know, normal people are probably going to be repulsed. Normal people might. I think your typical re- Republican voter would like probably an alternative to Trump or a Trump like figure. Um, there's polling uh, that just came out from Axios showing that if you ask people, are you, do you see yourself as traditional Republican or a Trump Republican? It's like a third will say, uh, it's a third will say Trump Republican and more than half will say traditional Republican indicates that, you know, he doesn't have a complete uh, hold on the party. The people who are in leadership positions in, in Congress, I just have a very uh, pretty low opinion of at this point. I, I don't think anything wakes them up. I think they're, they're the worst stereotype of, of politicians. Right. But I mean, in terms of like the, the you know the you know I, I question even using the term conservative, but among Republicans, among conservatives, doesn't this have some effect? And you know, and I'm thinking too, if there's a Senate trial and we start hearing credible evidence of you know you know bomb plots, actual plots to kill people, and and the, you know and actual acts and plots of violence, doesn't that at least? I mean, don't you think there's going to be a lot of conservatives sort of eyeing the door of saying there's got to be there's got to be a future without Trump, however that happens, whether he's removed or not. We've got we've got to somehow move on, even if there's no sort of mea culpa of of coming, you know, uh, of sort of recognizing that they've made a mistake or what have you. That Don't you think that there's going to be sort of a soft distancing by conservatives? Maybe not. Uh, no, that, that part I buy. I mean, it's um, yeah. I, I don't think they'll vote to convict him. I think whatever whatever evidence comes out, they're gonna uh, they're gonna say it's too divisive or, or, or something like. That. They're not gonna want to give Biden a win um, early in his presidency like that. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, they want this guy to go away. I mean, Mitch McConnell. There's nothing he would want more than Trump to go away. He's gonna get he's getting help from big tech right now, and he's getting help not just from big tech, but from uh, Deutsche Bank and all the uh, PGA and basically everything else that's uh, deplatforming Trump. He's getting you know help from the private sector. He'll have Trump, for the, uh, and so Trump's not gonna have social media. Um, he's uh, I, I can't imagine. You know, Fox News. We'll see. I mean, I think Fox News is probably going to want to turn away from that. Is you know the other option to reach the conservative base, um, and so the question becomes like, yeah, I think that's true. I think they're they're hoping for it. They've always sort of, they, you know, they hoped he, they, they've been hoping he'd go away for a while. That was what was happening during the 2016 primaries. They they eventually came around. He became the president, so you know he was useful for implementing a, an agenda. Um, at this point, yeah, I I I I, I think that they want there to be a distancing they also don't want to do anything to ensure they'll be i mean the things they could do to ensure that he goes away is to vote to impeach him and make sure he never can hold office again right that's the only way you could be 100 percent sure even with a deplatforming somehow he can he might be able to come back you just don't know um but i i think they see that as too risky they think they'll get primaried if trump ever does have a chance it'll be don jr running in 2024 and they'll all be primary that'll be that'll become the main issue in the republican party so yeah i would guess some distancing some trying to maybe work behind the scenes like try to get fox news not to have them on um you know uh ignoring trying to ignore his antics um but not taking any kind of dramatic break i think is the most likely scenario 
it seems like kind of a prisoner's dilemma situation where even folks like Hawley or Cruz, I mean, they want to run for president in four years. They, I don't see how they would particularly, they, they would rather not run against Trump again, <laughs> you know? Uh, so in that sense, maybe they have a self-interested uh, reason, you know, to convict him and bar him from future office. But, you know, uh, everyone would want someone else to do it. Right. And yeah. I think with Congress, you had this weird, you had this weird thing in the couple of days after, after January 6th, you had a weird, this weird thing where people in, uh, there were, there were white house officials and uh, executive branch officials who were saying, you know, through like anonymous leaks or whatever that like, Oh yeah. You know, Congress should impeach Trump and remove him. And meanwhile, the congressional people were saying, well, they should invoke the 25th amendment, right. To get rid of him. You know, so even, even there, those were like, I mean, you know, uh, obviously now they've, they decided that they are going to impeach him, but like even a lot of Democrats were like, you know, we'd rather someone else do it. (laughs) Everybody wants someone else to do it. Yeah. I I mean, the Democrats would do it. I mean, if they had the, if they had the votes, I mean, the Democrats would do it themselves, but you're right. There is a collective action problem among the Republican party. I mean, uh, getting primaried is not, you know, there's only like one or two things that are salient. So nobody voted for Obamacare uh, because the, you know, that was the thing you'd get primaried over. Um, the people get, you know, the, so the Tea Party. And so you had that. And then you have, you know, uh, immigration, whether you'd support it or not, was sort of a big thing. And uh, Eric Cantor lost his seat because talk radio turned against him because because of the immigration issue specifically. I don't know if there was any other problem they had with Eric Cantor. I think it was just that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if there's an impeachment vote, if there's a, you know, there's going to be a, I mean, there's going to be a vote to whether to convict him. I figured that that would be the dividing line within the Republican Party. It, it just would be the people, the, the rhinos or the traitors would be the ones who voted for it. I think some will do it anyway, like Romney, um, who doesn't have to worry about losing his seat, and Murkowski and Collins. You know who are uh, who? You know Collins is in Maine. Murkowski, I think, is popular within our state. Um, you know, maybe someone like Ben Sass, maybe somebody like that. You know, has a, just is so repulsed by Trump, they they take the risk. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, I don't see many more than that. Just because you become the target, you become, you know, you become who these people, who these people start hitting. I mean, when the, uh, uh, you know, the the Trumps, they have a intuitive understanding of the incentives politicians face. So the in the uh, the rally right before they stormed the Capitol, when Don Jr. was being the uh, the warm up act for his father, I don't know if it was that day or it was like a day before, but he was on stage and he was saying, "We're coming for you, Republicans. You know, if you don't vote to overturn the election, we're going to come for you and we're going to be primarying you and we're going to be in your district." Just very explicit, not even a you know an implicit threat. So they were trying to get them to overturn the election, and so they you know and, and ended up they they. A lot of them, a few of them, did vote to uh, uh, to object to the election results. Uh, a lot of them didn't. But voting to convict Trump is a much bigger deal. And I think the entire universe of the Trump family and Trump world is going to be turned on. You know, those so, so-called traitors um, in in uh, future elections and future leadership fights. You know, uh, Liz Cheney, I think, is. Um, I think <laughs> I, I don't think I would not uh, bet on her future being very. Uh, I would very secure at the leadership of the Republican Party. I think she, I think she made a decision that she she thought was principled, but it's probably not 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 good politics, which is why most people didn't go that way. Okay, so to uh, end on a different note, w- Richard. So one thing that you and I have in common is uh, that uh, in the last year, uh, we both read 
Gibbon's History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Oh, that, yeah, I saw that on Twitter. Yeah, that's right. Very good quarantine reading. And I saw on Twitter that you, you know, were tweeting about reading it or whatever. So what did you, what did you, what were your takeaways? What did you learn uh, from reading thousand plus pages of the 1400 year history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire? Uh So, I mean, before I, you know, I started getting into it, I thought it might be like, I thought it might be like a century. Right, I thought it would cover like you know oh, the history of the decline of all the Roman Empire, but it's about from like the third century till the mid fourteen hundreds. Uh, so I think the lesson there is decline can last for a really really long time. Um, you can be at a you could be at a peak and then you could um, and then you could decline. And you know this I was reading just about the uh, uh, the sultans uh, who were uh, who uh, took over Anatolia, of course, the the Turks. And you know they started. They people were talking about their decline lasting you know four four five hundred years uh, from the time of the fifteenth uh, uh, from the sixteenth century. Uh, so yeah, I think I think that's the I think that's the main idea. Decline can happen. Um, uh, could decline can happen, but it could take a very long time. Institutions are sort of are sort of stable in that way, at least the name of them, because the Western Roman Empire, after a while, was sort of a uh, was sort of a fiction after about the uh, the fifth century or so. Uh, but I love Gibbon. I mean, reading Gibbon, it was a uh, it was um, it was just much more fun than modern history books. And I, I I would bet that modern history books are a little bit more accurate, like if you fact checked every page. Uh, but you know, the, just the the combination of sort of uh, philosophy and sort of literature and history just makes it a, a great read. And I'd recommend I'd recommend everybody uh, read Given if you have a chance. Yes, it is definitely. Uh, he's a great stylist. And uh, I would I would say you know it kind of like uh, it, the the last parts are probably not as interesting to most people as the early parts because like after the fall of the West and other stuff. But I would recommend in particularly in particular the chapters about the rise of Islam and the Arabs. Um, there's a lot. Yeah. Of- yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I should I should plug my I mean I mean I have a Twitter thread I mean so if you search my name uh, uh, Gibbon you'll see like a Twitter thread I have, I have some from uh, yeah it goes into the um, the wives the sort of the, the the practices of the Arabs of the time but he gives you I mean he gives you just I mean the the, the scope of the book is I mean amazing you you get you get a history of Genghis Khan and his conquest you, you hear about Alaric you hear about uh, Attila the Hun um, just all these characters you know Tamerlane over over a you know a thousand plus year history um, so it's just it's just great i mean and you know you know it's, it's probably the most influential book in the western world on the uh the, the uh the late roman empire and the byzantine empire so you're um you know you're, you're sort of understanding you know you're understanding something about the history but you've also you're also understanding something about how the history has been traditionally understood and you know, there's a lesson there too yeah all right so it's still january folks you still have all year if you want to uh buckle down and read uh, all of uh, all Um, Okay, so Richard, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Josiah.